some of the stuff I wanted to cover tonight that is, I think, interesting for us, especially considering that the book of Daniel is such a book that leans so heavily in the area of the prophetic. And what we'll find out, and what I'm sure you probably already know, at least to some degree, I'm sure, is that a lot of what's covered in Daniel did not affect Daniel, did not affect the people of his day. Um, it actually, some of what is covered in Daniel is what happens at the very end of the age prior to the physical return of Christ. And most conservative Bible scholars today believe that we are in that time period. So I don't know what you know about, for instance, the tribulation. I don't know what you know about the events of the tribulation. Uh, if you were in my revelation class, we covered a lot of that because it's very, very straightforward for the most part in the book of Revelation. But what's fascinating to me is how Daniel is given insight into the historical future events that he sees in visions and dreams. And uh, it's just an absolutely fascinating thing. So when we talk about prophecy for humanity in general, we learn how God directs the nations in the past. And when I say in the past, certainly that's our, from our perspective, but it's essentially what we're talking about from Daniel's perspective. So um, here's Daniel coming onto the scene as probably a, somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 to 17 years old, having been transplanted from Jerusalem to Babylon, which is, of course, Iraq today. Um, and I don't know if you were aware of this, but during the days of Saddam Hussein, um, he was literally, he had a great, was putting a great amount of money and effort into excavating the ruins of Babylon. And he went so far as to build a presidential palace overlooking the ruins that they were excavating. And he referred to himself, interestingly enough, as Saddam Hussein, son of Nebuchadnezzar. And it's just kind of fascinating. So he was connecting himself with the past. Daniel, though, was looking at things that had somewhat already happened, but much of what the information he's given through visions or dreams or whatever is what was to come. And some of that happened while he still lived. But as we'll learn, um, he didn't get to see all of it because he would be alive today. Of course, that's impossible. But when we talk about prophecy, we're talking about how that reacts to or relates to or affects humanity in general. And what we learn very quickly from the Word is that God directs the nations. Period. Period. It is God, this is God's earth. Even though he allows Satan to still be the prince of the power of the air and to still exercise control. But the reality is, why does God do that? Because Satan will ultimately end up fulfilling God's purposes and will. 
And ultimately, what Satan does will ultimately bring glory to God. And so, what is interesting about that is, no matter what Satan attempts to do, no matter how he tries to rebel against God, no matter how he tries to bring God down or destroy his plans, he won't win. It's impossible for him to win. God is always a million steps ahead of him. And so because of that, we learn throughout Scripture how God directs the nations from the past. So if he's quite capable of directing the nations from the past, then the question is, is he capable of directing what has not happened yet to bring his will to fruition? And the resounding answer in Daniel alone is 100%, or we can say 200 or or 1,000%. It will happen. So that's humanity in general. And we also learned that what God was planning on doing in the near future, and again, this is from Daniel's perspective. So he learned quite clearly while he was in Nebuchadnezzar's court as a young man who was training to become a counselor, and we'll get into this, he learned what was in the past, and he also learned because of the messengers sent to him by God what was going to happen very soon. And then he also learns what God must be doing in the distant future. And, and when we get to Daniel chapter 12, it's pretty interesting. Because here is Daniel trying to, trying, he's trying desperately to understand this stuff. As you can imagine. I mean, imagine if you were given a vision and you lived in the, uh, I don't know, hundreds, 200 before Christ was born. So, Imagine life back then, or further, and you're given visions of what things were going to be like way in the future, just before Jesus returns. And you see things in your vision, like trucks and tanks and planes, you have no clue or concept. You, you can't understand them. You don't know that that's a plane. To you, it's some kind of live animal. So that's the way you kind of describe it. But that's what Daniel went through. And then when we get chapter 12, he's, he's still obviously confused about this stuff. So he asks more questions. And the angel just says, Daniel, shut up the book. Seal it up. It's meant for the people at the end. That's who will be digging deeply into this. And those are the people who will gain insight from this. You, what the angel is really saying, it's not for you, Daniel. We used you because God loves you so much and you love God. And because of your heart and because of your character, to write down all this stuff, but this ending is not for you. You'll be there to witness it from the spiritual realm, but you will not be alive for it. But the people who live when this stuff happens will understand it. And that's what they were. That's what uh, Daniel was really being told. Imagine how frustrating that would be. But he dealt with it. So, chapter two reveals. We're not going to get into this tonight. But the external character of the nations involved. So when we get into chapter two, we're going to be looking at it from the perspective of what these particular nations are like externally. 
And we'll see that in uh, the vision dream that Nebuchadnezzar has that Daniel ends up interpreting about the statue he saw. We're going we're gonna to learn about their relative power and glory, and it's a fascinating thing. And then chapters 7 through 8 reveals their internal character. A lot of times people will read through these chapters and go, well, this is kind of the same thing. They're just using different representations. Well, the reason they're using different representations, for instance, this was a statue here. They're usually animals representing those same kingdoms. Because now we're talking about the internal character of those particular empires versus this, we're talking about their external character. And that'll make more sense when we get into it. Again, this is just more overview. And in chapter 7 and 8, we see that their internal character, for the most part, includes haughtiness, brutality, aggressiveness, and vileness. And the vileness is specifically, I mean, all of those are part of each empire, but when you get to the Roman Empire, this is ramped up tenfold. And then when you get to the what they call the revised Roman Empire that happens at the very end of the age, just before Christ comes, and we read about that in Revelation, it really gets to be this. Brutal, aggressive. So they're all wild animals and birds of prey symbolizing their hostility. That's chapter 7. So, Prophecy deals with humanity in general because we're all on God's earth, breathing his air, living life that he allows us to have. He is in charge of which empire, it it just cracks me up. I, I see what's going on in Europe right now. Ukraine is fighting a, actually the U.S. is fighting a proxy war with Russia through Ukraine. That's basically what's happening. Ukraine is the puppet. But you got to ask yourself, why is Ukraine doing this? Why are we giving them so much money? What are we trying to cover? But even aside from all that, what's behind that? Well, God is behind that. God is allowing this to happen. God is allowing that to happen. We've got China keeps threatening to go to war with Taiwan. The U.S. steps in and says, hey, if you mess with Taiwan, you're going to deal with us. I don't think China is scared of us, quite frankly. I just don't think it. So all of this wars and rumors of wars that Jesus talked about in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 is exactly what's happening because he was pointing also to the end of the age just before he returned. He goes, there's going to be wars, rumors of wars. But notice he said when he did that, he said, but don't worry. Don't worry. These things have to happen. It's not the end yet. So when we see what's happening in the world today, most of the time, I think we can sit there and go, well, it's a put-on. Somebody's trying to fake a play or do something, and they want to ramp it up in the news, and it's like, I don't know. People are getting bought. People buy into it. So we've got the prophecy that deals with humanity in general, all the empires of the world. But then we have prophecy that deals specifically and only with Israel. So Daniel also deals with that. Why would Daniel deal with that? Well, because Daniel is Jewish. And so he was very concerned about his people, the Jews. They had been kicked out of their land by Nebuchadnezzar. People want to know, rightfully know, when do we get to go back? Has God God forgotten us? Has he cast us off? Is this it? Is this the end of Israel? So 
Daniel is very concerned about those things. Matter of fact, when we get to one chapter, we'll see his in-depth prayer where he literally becomes, he takes on the position almost of a high priest for Israel, praying to God, confessing Israel's sins on behalf of Israel so that they will uh, be brought before God and God will speak. And it's interesting how he responds to that prayer when we get there. So we learn how God directs the affairs of the nation of Israel. And Israel, I know that some people think there, there are some similarities, I will grant you that, uh, between the U.S. and Israel. But, but in reality, when we look at specifically at what God created, Israel is the only nation that he personally created for his specific purpose. And what were those purposes? Why did he create Israel? Just because he was sitting up there in heaven on his throne and going, eh, it's kind of boring. Let me, uh, let me mix this up here. Uh, I know, I'll create a nation. And uh, yeah, 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 let's, let me start there. Why did he create Israel? What were the purposes for that? Weren't they supposed to glorify him? Yes, they were supposed to glorify him by heaven. Well, uh, Jerusalem is the center of God's earth. It is. And, Ezekiel tells us that. And if you go all the way back to Abraham, but uh, ultimately they end up, the Israelites end up coming out of Egypt and taking right. over this area. Right. But in the process of doing that, they become the pariah of the entire world. Why? Because they... What was God using them for? In, locally, right there. Uh, to, well... He was using them as his arm of judgment, right? Uh, well, yes. I mean, and some folks say about the Nephilim, you know. That, oh. You know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to dive off into that. But That's okay. To get rid of certain peoples that were that them. that their cup of wrath had become full. Right. So that's one of the big purposes, Sam. Thank you. Israel was created by God to bring God's justice to this world. And so he would do that by using Israel to get rid of nations that really had sinned so much and so often and rejected God outright that their, literally their cup had become full to overflowing. They had had every possible chance to repent, to come to him, to see the truth, to reject their ways which were evil, and they refused. So, Israel, one of the purposes of Israel was to create a way in which God's judgment could be meted out to the nations of this world through Israel. But what happened? Well, they, uh, I mean, we're talking about sacrificing babies. Yeah. Right? So they sinned. To, yeah, well, Israel ends up aligning themselves. Right. And co-mingling right. with these nations. Exactly. And, you know, I just read through Kings and Chron first and second Deuteronomy. Kings and second Chronicles. I mean, okay. you have these different dynasties or kings. Right. Some some work for God, some don't. Well, there was not and, one good. And some are sort of they 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 don't complete they don't complete God's will. Uh, in, in terms of, well, what I'm saying is they may they, they may have been uh, God-fearing, but they didn't actually go out and clean up 
claim, claim right. their own homes. In Israel, after it, um, after Israel divided into two, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. After that point, there was not one good king in Israel, not one. Judah only had a few good kings. They all not only adopted the ways of the nations they were supposed to kick out of the land and deal with, become God's arm of judgment. They not only did that, but they often went much further in sin. So the reality is, they were supposed to be God's arm of judgment. What was the other main thing Israel was created for? What was the other main thing? Salvation. Who was ultimately brought from the nation of Israel? Up to the line of David was Christ. It was Christ from the tribe of Judah. And it is because of him that you and I have salvation. So Israel's two responsibilities were to be an arm of judgment. But in order to be an arm of judgment, they had to live righteously. They couldn't just live any way they want to and then say, oh, well, God says we need to take the Philistines out. When they started living in a way that brought dishonor to God, they started losing battles. They started becoming corrupt and evil. And then God had to actually use another nation. And in this case, he used Babylon to come in and raid and conquer them. But even at that, Nebuchadnezzar could have slaughtered everybody in Jerusalem, everybody in Judah. But God worked through him so that he didn't do that. He simply came in, literally took over. Some folks died. Many were taken to Babylon. He didn't have to do that. But he saw people and he thought, this can benefit me. I'm going to take these. Who put that on his heart? God did. God did. So this is Israel. And this is going to happen, by the way, in two stages. Both. This is so fascinating. Let me read this again. In Daniel, we learn how God directs the affairs of the nation of Israel, the only nation he personally created for his specific purposes. Okay. This will happen in two stages. Both were future from Daniel's perspective. One is still yet future from our perspective. So as we're reading through Daniel, we need to realize that some of the stuff that we, is revealed to Daniel, that he reveals to us, occurred during Daniel's lifetime. Roman Empire did not, but he saw it in a vision, chapter 2 and then 7 and 8. So he saw what was going to happen way in the future. Now the Roman Empire is already behind us. But the Bible tells us, not only in Daniel, but in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Revelation, Joel, Amos, and a few others, that way down the end of the historical timeline here in the future, there's going to be another empire that becomes truly and fully global. Do we have anything happening right now that gives us the impression that may be in the works? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah we do. We have actually quite a bit. And we have to sit there and go, well, wow, what do we do? What's our response to that? Well, we'll, we'll figure that out later. First stage is the near future, which was persecution under Antioch's Epiphanes. This guy, wow, this guy, I, I could sit here and talk about him for an hour or two. Uh, 
um, and where he came from. He, he actually descended or came from the uh, Grecian Empire after Alexander died, and then his empire, which was huge at the time, uh, was split into four generals. His four generals took over various parts of the Grecian Empire. Well, of course, they started fighting and decided they wanted to increase their little territory, so they would go after this person, the other general, or maybe somebody outside of the four generals. Anyway, Antichanes, Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, was one of the guys underneath one of those generals. This guy was absolutely astounding. He was alive during the time of Cleopatra. 168 BC, he did something absolutely horrible with the Jews. He desecrated the temple. He slaughtered a pig on it. And Josephus tells us that he also took a statue of Zeus, put a mask of his own face, Antiochus' face, over the face of Zeus, and put that in the Holy of Holies. And that, by the way, became known as the abomination of desolation. And that is what Jesus referred to in his um, Olivet Discourse when he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, let the reader understand. Those are Matthew's words. So what's basically what Jesus was saying is, this event that Antiochus did is going to be repeated, except it's going to be repeated by another Antiochus Epiphanes called the Antichrist. And we could get into 2 Thessalonians, where Paul talks, well, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, where Paul talks about this man of sin, or the man of lawlessness, depending on your translation. So imagine you're Daniel, and you see snippets of this stuff. And you don't really know what to do with it and how to understand it, but you just dutifully write it down and try and put it in some order. And then all the while you're going, I, I, don't, I don't understand. Can you help me out understand this? And so he, he was given understanding, but he still didn't understand in some cases. Don't you imagine John was a sign one? I'm sorry? John. Oh, yeah. He uh, wrote a revelation. Oh, yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you get a grip on something that you're seeing from the first century, maybe when you're looking at the 21st or 22nd century? There's, you just... There's just a loss of, you have nothing to connect it with, so, yeah. So this persecution occurred in the 2nd century B.C., this one right here, 168 B.C. And by the way, a lot of the Jews were slaughtered during this time. Antiochus had gone to Egypt, he wanted to conquer Egypt. And Rome was just upcoming at that time. So a soldier, I think it was Scipio, from a uh, high-ranking soldier from Rome, met him there and he said, don't even try. Don't even try. If you try and attack Egypt, you'll be dealing with Rome. So Antiochus was rebuffed and he was sullen. And so he went north. And this is all in the book of Daniel. It's all in the book. We'll get there. And so he went north and he was stopped at Israel in Jerusalem and he took out his immense anger on the Jews and slaughtered tons of them in just a few days and then desecrated the town. So this is going to happen again. Now, what's interesting about this, though, of course, is if Israel had done everything they were supposed to do and lived the way they were supposed to live, none of this would have happened. Daniel would never have been taken to Babylon. 
If they had lived the way they were supposed to live, we probably wouldn't have some of Scripture right now because it never would have needed to have been written. But they didn't do that because they're stiff-necked, rebellious, proud. And one day God will take them as a nation and remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. All right, so the second stage, with the far future, points to the coming Antichrist, a Roman-like ruler, also in the same chapter, notice, same chapter, so that those chapters are kind of divided up. This Antichrist, Rome will rise again, and it'll start in Europe. And if you look at what's happening in Europe, if you look at what's been happening over the past few decades, we can see that the EU started, and now it looks like the EU may be waning because something else is coming. So there's so many people vying for leadership and vying for power. It's just phenomenal how this stuff keeps going on. But eventually, a Roman-like empire and a Roman-like ruler will probably rise somewhere in Europe, and he's not going to stand up and go, I'm the Antichrist, and they're probably not going to name it the Revised Roman Empire. What they're shooting for is a global government, which will be divided into ten sections first, and then from there they'll get the ultimate ruler. And the ten sections of the ten kings, I think it's Romans, or excuse me, Revelation, I think 17, it talks about how the world's going to be one, but then it'll be divided into ten sections and there will be ten kings. And then out of those ten kings or alongside, the Antichrist rises. It's just fascinating. I mean, you talk about a political thriller. Scripture has it in the book of Revelation. All right, so at this time, God did not say these two would be two different rulers. So when Daniel got these visions and he understood this stuff, he could very likely thought that Antiochus Epiphanes and this guy were the same guy. But they're not. They're separated by thousands of years. And that's normal for Scripture. If you go to Zechariah, I think it's 9, 10, no, 10, 9, and 10, it talks about the coming of Christ. Zechariah, I think it's 10, 9, and 10, or 9, 9, and 10, where it talks about the coming of Christ. And he will come and what he will do. But it's funny because as you read the text, there is a huge gap between verse 9 and verse 10 that the original writers had no clue about. But looking back, we can tell there was a huge... Did you have that, Sonia? I'm looking. Let me just read it real quickly. The coming king. It's 9-9. Nine, nine. Okay, can you read 9 and 10? It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I, and then this is verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Okay. He really jumped out, didn't he? So, yeah, here's the reality. Zechariah 9, 9 occurred when Christ came into this world. We, you know, we know that he rode into Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey. That happened. What happened to the next part? It hasn't happened yet. It's a huge gap there. But when that was written, and the Jewish rabbis would study that, they would assume, this is why when Jesus walked this earth, uh, they thought, oh, the Messiah, the Messiah. 
He's going to come and look what he's going to do. He's going to bring peace to this earth. He's going to take all the weapons of warfare away. He's going to bring it all together. And that didn't happen. Why? Because the leadership of Jerusalem rejected him and had him put to death. So there's this gap. That second, that verse 10, that second part will be fulfilled when he comes again. So it's just fascinating. So that's the way scripture is. Um, you often, when you're there and you are given these visions and stuff, you don't really see the gaps. It's like someone has said, you know, there are people, we, people argue about everything today where the Bible is concerned. You know it and I know it. You've probably been in some of those discussions or maybe it's turned into an argument about um, whatever you want to talk about. The end times, let's just use that one. When is Jesus coming again? Some people are convinced it's going to be at this particular feast. Some people are convinced of that. And then when Jesus, I mean, they just, they have all kinds of reasoning for it. One particular commentator I read, which I love, he goes, the best way to understand prophecy is after it happens. <laughs> it is. Yes. Because all of a sudden, everything falls into place, and then you go, ah, I missed that one. Now I get it. So the point is, this is what they had to put up with because Daniel didn't see everything. He didn't see the gaps. Yeah. And God purposefully did that. Because if God shared everything with us, who would also know? I ask this all, all the time in my last class. Huh? Satan? Satan would know. Satan doesn't need to know everything. Satan is kept guessing because God holds some things close to his chest. I'm sorry? He blinds him. Oh, he does. And then Satan has fun blinding us when he can, when he's allowed to. So God did not say these would be two different rulers. And Daniel, again, we'll see, couldn't quite understand it. He was confused. Uh, this says, we understand much more today from our perspective. I don't know why that's part of it. We do. We understand. We can look back and we can say, oh, I can see clearly the empire's First, real, first introduced in Daniel chapter 2, which weren't even on the scene yet. I know who those were. When I get to chapter 8, I know who all those people are now, historically, even though no name is mentioned for anybody in those. It's just absolutely fascinating. When we get to it, you'll love it. I will say that there are only empires that deal with Israel. Yeah, there's just those. But that, it's not the Egyptian empire or any, any empire like that. Or the Assyrians. It's the, it's, the, it's the particular empires that God included in what he called the times of the Gentiles. And he reveals that to Daniel later. Prophecy also deals with God himself. God's sovereign rule over all time and space is stressed repeatedly in the book of Daniel. So if you're ever, ever tempted to doubt that God is in charge, just read the book of Daniel. Just read the book again, and you'll see over and over and over again how much God really is in charge. And Daniel includes two sub-revelations, by the way. I just thought I'd throw this out to you. God's wisdom and God's power. So we see his wisdom and we see his power on almost every page of Daniel. It's nothing that can be circumvented by people or by spiritual entities. So absolute sovereignty demands perfect wisdom and limitless power. Would you agree? This is Dr. Thomas Constable I quoted. Absolute sovereignty, which is God, demands or requires absolute perfect wisdom 
and limitless power. Right. That is our God. So, you know, I sometimes think about, and obviously it's God, but how does God keep, this sounds very human and denigrating to God, and I don't mean it that way, but how does God keep track of everything? How does he keep track? I can't keep track of everything in my own life. So I'll be talking about something and I'll, I'll be right in the mid-sentence and going, you know, that word, what? Yeah, where'd you like to put that? Or, or I put something away and I tell her, okay, Sylvia, I'm putting this right here so we'll remember where it is. Two days later. What did I do with that thing? It just happens. It's not God's problem at all. We understand that. We know. He can see the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end, and every step in between. That's the God we worship. And the hubris of Satan who says in Ezekiel, I will be like the Most High. He's a created being. He has no chance of being like the Most High because the Most High is non-created. Always is, always was, always will be. But that is absolute hubris. But we've got God who is absolutely sovereign over every detail. Nothing is missed. I sometimes, when I drive the... Uh, drive around the neighborhoods or I'm on errands. I, I like to take country roads because I see more nature. And I will sit there and I'll see where somebody ran over a turtle or something else. And I think, you know, God knew it was going to happen, allowed it to happen for the balance of whatever, for whatever his reason is. My heart goes out, especially when I see a dead dog on the side of the road. I hate that. But that's the way it is. And, and as far as God's creation, everything is in balance, even though we're cursed because of our sin and we sin. God's perfect wisdom is seen in his insight into the course of human history, and it is given to Daniel. And we will see how Daniel is very limited in what he's able to understand. And God's limited power, limitless power is seen in his setting up and taking down Gentile kingdoms. And I think, honestly, it sounds terrible, but I think this is what's kind of happening with the USA, sadly. We're, we're being taken down from within. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know if or what can turn that around, but it doesn't seem like God has shown any interest in trying to turn that around, so we're just going to have to see. But God does what he will. He delegates authority. He delegates power to a human being to have an empire for a while, and then he'll take that away. And he's showing all of this to Daniel. So all of this should cause our immediate humility and continual humility and submission to him, trusting in his will in all things. And that's, I think, the hardest part for most of us human beings. Trusting in a God that we know is there, but we can't see, and it's so hard to lock into what he's doing sometimes. But that's because of us, sin. And our faith usually in those days is not strong enough. So when we read through Daniel, this is what I'd like to keep in mind. What we're reading about is either actual history that has already occurred or future history that will occur. And because of it, our goal should be every day to submit to him, his plan, and his care because of his absolute sovereignty. That's one of the big messages of Daniel. 
I mean, yes, it's fun to study prophecy. It's interesting. We gain insight into how God works. But the, the main reason we should study prophecy is to increase our awareness and love for God who knows all things and is the absolute and final authority over everything because of his sovereignty. So through our submission to God, he will give us insight. He will give us insight into history, both past, what's happening now, and future based on his word, at least as much as we can understand or need to know. And so we'll come to understand that God is guiding the course of evil, of evil, to its ultimate and final end. That's one of the things he's doing. He is allowing evil to be seen by the universe for what it is, in all its corruption. And the reason he's doing that is so that he will be able to bring an end to it. <coughs> Through eternal destruction. He's also guiding the course of good to its conclusion. And when we say good, we're talking about good, God's definition, not what we define it as. And that will end in eternal victory and glory. So everyone who is a Christian will experience this, eternal victory and glory. may not feel like that in this life at times, but ultimately we, we will. Everyone who is not a Christian will experience this. God has two programs. Everybody fits into one of these. You know, we can talk about culture wars and uh, all kinds of men versus women and this group versus that culture. God only looks at it like there's two groups of human beings in this world. They're either all going, they're going to go here by their own choosing or they're going to go here through faith in Christ. And Daniel brings that out loudly and clearly. The world is not getting better in a way. We know that. It's not. I can think of the 70s, and I know there were problems, but when I think of the 70s and I compare them to today, there's no comparison because of what's happening today. We have so much more corruption and evil in the politics of the world, often within Christendom, within daily life, but God allows all this to happen, and it is happening because he has purposes in it. So, based on all this, Daniel tells us how we should live. And we should basically live as Daniel and his three friends lived. Imagine, you're comfortably living in Jerusalem, and then one day you hear war cries, and... If you have the opportunity, you get up on the wall that surrounds Jerusalem and you see this army headed your way. And it's they're kicking up the dust. It looks like a cloud of horses. And they finally manage to break through the wall and uh, they decide to take you and your friends to a faraway land. And that's where you live your entire life. You never get to go back to Jerusalem. But while you were not in Jerusalem and you were in this foreign land that had foreign gods and foreign cultures and foreign customs, you didn't give in. You retained your commitment to the Lord, your righteousness, if you will. We should separate ourselves to God and to His will. And honestly, I've realized this over the past year. The way this world is going, it's almost like you know what? We need to get out of Babylon, at least emotionally. 
We still have to relate to the world. We still have to shop in the world. We still have to do things. But we should emotionally pull ourselves away. This is exactly what Daniel and his three friends did. And we should worship the infinite, eternal God who will ultimately bring us to Him. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that, though. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get a little bit frustrated. You can ask my wife, because it doesn't feel like sometimes God is in charge. But He is in charge. And I have to reject that doubt, that thought, and say, no, I can't go there, because God is in charge. And even though it doesn't feel like that to me, He is very much in charge, very aware of everything that's going on in my life, knows what's best for me, and my job is to submit to Him, to separate myself from the things that will pull me away from Him. This is what the book of Daniel is about. It's not just about prophecy, although that's a big part of it. So studying the book of Daniel should bring us to our knees in worship and adoration. It's exactly what happened to Daniel. He was given the secrets of God that had not been revealed yet. He's the only book that talks about the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. Jeremiah talks about 70 years, and so that confused Daniel when we get to it, but Daniel's the only one who talks about 70 weeks and how long that period of time is. So Daniel worshiped God, and I would like to do that better myself. Daniel encourages me to learn how to do that. So Daniel 1 is introductory. We're finally getting to the text. Daniel 1 is introductory. It quickly brings us up to speed regarding several things. How Daniel and his friends got to the, to the Babylon area. How uh, Daniel and his friends had a moral character already that, that had grown within them. These guys are not slouches. We will find that out. We'll remember. Because they were committed to Yahweh, the Lord God. And because of that commitment, they were put through some grueling tests and persecution. You remember. Yeah. That could very well happen to us. We know that our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are facing persecution to death almost daily. So the moral character that these guys had is necessary to receive wisdom, discernment, spiritual enlightenment from God's Word. If Daniel and his friends only took God, eh, yeah, when I get there, none of this would have happened. Daniel wouldn't have been written. But it was written because of their moral character that stemmed from the fact that they were committed to God. And because of their commitment, God gave wisdom, discernment, spiritual enlightenment. And I would also add to that boldness, especially in the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That is amazing when we get there. Chapter 1, 1 to 14 is what they call a chiasm in Hebrew. A chiasm is a literary device in which a segment of ideas is presented. It almost reads kind of like a poem, but things don't necessarily rhyme. In Hebrew, chiasm is a big thing. That's the way much of the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, is written. So I'm going to show you an example of it. Uh, it's, a, it's a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then it's repeated in reverse order, creating a mirror effect using different words and sometimes even different concepts. So here's an example. Structurally, 
the chapter, there's not going to be a test after this, by the way. <laughs> I know. Structurally, the chapter is, the entire chapter is a chiasm, with the first 14 verses presenting a tension, and then the last seven providing the resolution. So, for instance, they always do it like this when they, when they write it out as a chiasm, and they just try to, I guess, create this, this vision for people to see. Verses 1 and 2, Babylonia assumes supremacy over, Eve, or over Israel. Verses 3 to 7, young men are taken and subjected to pagan training. Verses 8 to 14, Daniel seeks to remain faithful to his God. 15 and 16, Daniel remains faithful to his God. Young men triumph in their pagan training. Verses 17 through 20. You can see how it mirrors. And then <coughs> Daniel proved supreme over the Babylonians. Verse 21. It was the first one Babylonian. Babylonia becomes supreme over Israel, but Daniel, in the end, becomes supreme over Babylonia. Why? Because he was so committed to God, and God blessed that endeavor. I think that's interesting because how often do you read and it's like, I just read this. I read this before. Yeah. But because it's a key as of, you're kind of, you've read that, you've read that, now you're reading it again. And it becomes more familiar. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's helpful. Alright, so Daniel, verse 1. In the third year, this is the actual text, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but you will be in a minute. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So that's the, that's the first introductory verse of Daniel chapter 1. This is, I mean, it's a very, very quick uptake to let us know what's going on. So this you is... You know what year that was? I'm sorry? Year? 605. Huh? 605. 605 BC? Yeah. Okay. So third year of Jehoiakim, that's the third year of his reign, you can, and it's confirmed in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Yeah. But of course, oh, and then Jeremiah wrote it, was the fourth year. So, now, Daniel says his third year, Jeremiah wrote it for the fourth year. So obviously there's a mistake in Scripture, so let's just toss the Bible out, right? Higher critics jump on this type of stuff. And they always end up looking like idiots. Yeah. Because... Unfortunately, they are. Because they don't understand what's really happening. They're looking at for every jot and tittle. Oh, that dot wasn't, wasn't dotted. That I wasn't dotted. That T wasn't crossed. See? But there's a perfectly good reason for it. They, have, they pounce on the error, but the difference is probably due to Daniel writing from the Babylonian perspective and Jeremiah wrote from the Jewish perspective. Uh, the Hebrews have two calendars, too. I'm sorry? They have a secular calendar. They do. It's a different and calendar. calendar. Yeah. And all the off of one another. Right. And the Babylonians looked at things differently than the Jews. Well, when, a, when a king right. rose to become king, even if it was his ascension, when he became king, they considered that his first year, even if that only was like November or December as an example, and then the year would start over. They considered that the whole year. But that's not the way Daniel would do it. Sorry, that's not the way Jeremiah would do it. So anyway, 
We have that. All right, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar. Land of Shinar, not Babylon. wonder why. We'll find out in a minute. To the house of his God, Nebuchadnezzar's God. And he brought articles into the treasure house of his God. Now, even though he took the vessels from the temple, what he actually wound up doing, whether he realized it or not, was keeping those Israeli vessels in a very safe place. Yeah. Until his grandson, or whoever he was, there's disagreement about that, Belshazzar, who took that stuff and said, hey, let's drink out of it, let's have a party, blah, 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 and then the writing of the wall took place. But during the entire time of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he just left them there. And they were actually put there by God for safekeeping. So Daniel clearly acknowledges God's sovereignty in this text. Look at that. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So he didn't say Nebuchadnezzar came in and, you know, beat us and blah, blah, blah. The Lord gave Jehoiakim. Why? Well, was Jehoiakim the best king? Uh, No. No. So when there was a good king in Judah... God protected them because the king would usually submit himself to God. That's not the case with Jehoiakim. So Daniel acknowledges God's sovereignty. We will see this adoration of God's sovereignty throughout the book of Daniel, which should also be a hallmark of our life. So the land of Shinar, by the way, I'm sorry you can't read the bottom. The land of Shinar is another name for Babylon. And it, when, that, when that name is used, land of Shinar, it connotes an evil hostile to God place. So this is why I believe Daniel was led to use land of Shinar instead of Babylon. But if you think about it, in either case, Babylon goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel, which was evil. They were trying to become one. And they were trying to ascend to the heavens and bring the gods down. So carrying off the items from another people's temple showed dominion. So that's one way Nebuchadnezzar could brag. See, my God's bigger than their God because their God didn't stop me from taking this stuff. So I'm going to continue worshiping my God because obviously this God for Israel is not as powerful as mine. Well, we know that Nebuchadnezzar finds that it's not to be true later on. That's not the last time that happened, either. I'm sorry? That's not the last time that happened. It happened with the Assyrians, too. Oh, it happened, yes. Every empire. Nebuchadnezzar was literally bragging that his God was more powerful than Israel's. And because of this set of events, Daniel reminds, he takes the time to remind us, Israel and God literally experienced on the surface humiliation at Nebuchadnezzar's hands. This is humiliating to Israel. It's it's seen as being humiliating to God because God wasn't powerful enough to stop Nebuchadnezzar's invasion. Of course, we know that God brought that invasion on, just like he's going to do in Ezekiel 38-39 when the northern invasion happens, probably during the tribulation, maybe before, when God of Magog is going to have, God's going to put hooks in God's nose and turn him around and have him attack Israel. That's God doing it. Daniel spent the rest of the book vindicating God. So all this happens in the first few verses of Daniel, and then Daniel spends the rest of the book of Daniel showing God's supremacy. 
Now, I think we're going to finish with this one, this section. Verses 3 to 7. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. So Nebuchadnezzar is stupid. He took the cream of the crop and he wanted these young men. No, notice this. He says, take young men in whom there is no blemish, good looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand who had the ability to serve in the king's palace. Nebuchadnezzar was specific. Those were the job requirements. So this guy, Ashkenaz, was supposed to round up these individuals who were good looking, had no blemish, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge already, and quick to understand. So he does that. And what was he hoping to do? Well, he wanted them to take part in the king's palace so that they would learn the language and literature of the Chaldeans, and the king appointed them for daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. And three years of training, so they were going to be put in a training program for three years so that at the end of the time, they might serve before the king as what? His counselors, his wise men. He was always looking for the best people. And you know what? That is the mark of a really good CEO. The mark of a really good CEO will go out and find the best people to work under him or her because it makes him or her look really good. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do. Verse 6. He's hoping that they assimilate too and take over the... Yeah, you're, yeah. you're, you're Except the uh, traditions and you're, all of that. Then they can go back to their kingdom and kind of run things. Yes. You're stealing my thunder. No. Sorry. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm just trying to move you no. along. No, no, that's okay. Yeah. What's that? I said, yeah, he's just moving you along. <laughs> now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those three became known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel became known as, changed their name, Daniel, to Belshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, and, to Meshach, and Azariah, to Abednego. So that was the first thing that Nebuchadnezzar does. He changes their name. You're going to get rid of that Hebrew Jewish nonsense. Now we're going to call you this. Good Chaldean names. Good Babylonian names. He wanted them to assimilate. And he was telling them that by changing their names. Alright. So Nebuchadnezzar realized what he gained from Israel. He took these young men, considered most promising and without defect. Physically. Placed them in a training program. This was eventually to make his counselors wise men, as I mentioned. And no idea how many other men, young men, with Daniel and the three friends were part of this. But as far as we know, only Daniel and his three friends, only those four, expressed desire to abstain from the king's food. They preferred to stick with Jewish dietary laws. So this could have been a big problem because Nebuchadnezzar wanted them assimilated and they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can't. I can't eat this stuff because it goes against what I believe is the correct way to live. That would be hard. Wouldn't that be hard? That would be very hard. And yet they did it. So imagine what has happened. You're Daniel. You're one of the three boys. 
You watch as your country is invaded. You watch as people in your country, some of them are killed. You watch as many, including you, are taken to another land. You don't know how far away you're going. Away from your homeland. You realize you may never see your homeland again. You, you think you may be mistreated in this homeland. What's going to happen to you? Are you going to be tossed in a dungeon? Are you going to be made a slave? You have no idea. You are now in a completely different culture. And they have strange gods that you've never heard of. And strange customs that you're not familiar with. And you're expected to assimilate. So you're not mistreated so far. That's good. But you're now forced into an education you didn't ask for. And you have to learn not only the language of that particular culture, but their history, including all their gods. You're told to eat foods against your own wishes and God's laws. You're being expected to assimilate, Sam, into Babylonian culture to replace your own. And you're told really to forget about that. You're here now. This is your life. This is your culture. But instead, as politely as possible, you ask permission to avoid taking part in the king's delicacies. You request vegetables and water instead. So the literature of the Chaldeans, verse 4, and by the way, Chaldean has a double meaning in Daniel. It refers to ethnic or southern Babylonians or Babylonians in general and it also describes a class of astrologers and priests that emerged from the ethnic culture of Babylonians. So ultimately, this is what they were training these four young men for. They wanted them to be astrologers and priests in the culture of Chaldea, Babylonia. So like all cultures, Babylonian culture developed over generations. It didn't just happen overnight. Rome didn't happen overnight. Nothing happened overnight. What Daniel and his three friends studied was history and literature and this ancient part of the world. I think we can probably stop there. Can we stop? You can stop? Is that good? I'm sorry? Yeah, let's stop there. We'll start with this one next time. We were almost done, but, well, we were almost done with this set of slides, but not done. So anyway, anybody have any questions or comments?